So thanks for joining. This is the Interledger bi-weekly community call. Uh, happens every two weeks, 4 p.m. UTC. Um, this is the 11th of December call. Uh, the agenda, as always, is posted on the forum. And today's agenda um, has a few topics. I've proposed that we get some clarity on the expiring stream credentials. Evan uh, wants to talk a little bit about the Interledger 2020 blog posts. Um, David uh, is keen to chat about changes to RFC submission process. Uh, and then if this time, I'd like to talk a bit about the core recordings, um, not only publishing them on the website, but also uh, getting some help, possibly publishing them as a podcast. That was a request from someone in the community. So that's the uh, agenda today. Um, I'm going to kick off with the expiry on stream credentials. Um, the link is in the agenda, but I'm happy to post it in here again um, for anyone who's interested. Uh, it's an issue in the RFCs repo. Um, basically, uh, the gist of it is that right now, when you follow SPSV or any setup protocol and you get uh, interledger address and shared secret that you can use to establish a stream connection. Um, nothing tells you how long those are valid. Uh, so you, you have no way of knowing um, that they may expire after some time. Uh, and in our web monetization, the way we use them today is they're, they're kind of very ephemeral. If you make a two requests to the same SPSV endpoint, for example, you always get a different address and secret, um, but there's nothing in the stream protocol that, um, or at least in the spec that defines how a receiver should behave if someone connects using um, an old address and secret. And, and part of the implementation burden here is as a receiver, um, we generally like to aggregate payments received to a specific uh, address and secret against something like an SPSP request, like an invoice or session or something. So uh, the addresses and secret, the credentials used to establish the stream connection generally provide some context for why the money is being sent. Uh, and so they are useful to kind of, uh, at least as a receiver, you wanna be able to know how long do I have to remember these things? So I've generated them, I've given them to someone to use to connect. So do I have to store them somewhere? Um, how long is it important that the root secret I use to generate them, if I'm doing it in a clever stateless way, um, needs to stay alive, stuff like that. So um, it's kind of a life cycle management question. I think David's answer is probably the closest to where we want to be, but then um, Evan has actually posted a comment as well, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. So I don't know, Evan, if you're on the call, if you wanted to just talk through your response or and David as well. Um, that, that sort of sets the scene. Um, maybe David, you can just explain your thinking behind yours and, and then Evan follow. Sorry, just unmuting. <clears throat> um, I didn't I didn't really have a strong opinion other than it seemed like like the existing functionality could um, satisfy it. Uh, that was one thought. And then the other thought is that um, certain implementations may, may be like unable to 
like satisfy the requirement. So it seemed like just like closing the connection for people that could do it was sufficient without like creating a new primitive, but I do see how it's a little bit oblique. For me, I would just weigh in and like, this seems pretty solidly to be an application concern. And so my question generally is, uh, like, will all applications built on top of Stream require the same functionality, or is Stream somehow in like a much better position to do this? And it doesn't seem like all applications will require this. So my question then is more about what would you what would be required for an application for application logic built on top of Stream to be able to implement this? And I wrote up a couple points in there, but overall it just doesn't seem like something the transport layer has to be responsible for. Okay, I mean, how would I, you? I guess, yeah, go for it, Matt. No, I was just going to say then, how would you know as the application layer whether those credentials were failed for a certain reason? You wouldn't, right? So if I try to connect them a stream and it was just closed, there's nothing to say that they were expired or like I can't use these credentials. You could keep retrying. No, so the, those are failed. no, the way that I would think about this is so the receiver gets in some incoming stream or connection. They deter the application would get a hook would need some kind of hook to be able to accept or deny that uh, that connection. When they deny it, they would deny it with an uh, 09, like in it's in hex, so 09, whatever the number that is, application error, um, because this is the application saying this is no good. And if the application wants to include additional details, they can include that in the data, for example. So like the reason why stream is able to carry data is so that is in part so that you can build other protocols like this on top of it without needing everything to become a stream frame. Yeah, so I think that makes sense. But uh, what it does do is there's some assumptions there about the interface between the application and stream, which I don't think we've got well defined. So the assumption is every time a stream receiver gets an incoming connection, it's going to like query the application layer about whether it should accept it or not. That seems like I wouldn't potentially say that a dangerous don't... assumption. Yeah, go ahead. Mm. I think about that less as like a general assumption and more from the other perspective of like, if you want to build applications that look like this, you need this functionality from your stream receiver. Mm. One thing is that I think if you go the other way and like, I don't, I don't really see how you would assume that stream has access to persistence because to me, that's what it would require in order to, I think that's what it would require to figure out if a stream connection has been closed, that the stream receiver itself would need persistence. Is that right? I would, I, I kind of hope not. Like I think um, I, my assumption here is uh, you've used some like set of protocols. So let's say you call a SPSP endpoint, right? So now you're, you're operating at application layer. SPSP is calling down to stream to say, hey, generate me an address and a secret to give this 
counterparty. Uh -huh. uh, so stream generates those. It does it using one of the clever algorithms we've come up with, which means it can be stateless. So there's a bunch of stuff encoded in there. And it gives it uh -huh. back to the other application. The other application passes it down to its stream sender, which establishes the connection. Now, like in my mind, we shouldn't need connection, the, the connection, incoming connection uh, to the stream receiver to need to make any call up to the application immediately. It should just accept the incoming credentials because, hey, it generated them and it should have some way of validating those. It should receive incoming, um, uh, incoming packets. And at some point in time, it notifies the application layer, hey, I've received so much under this connection tag. And the application just has to worry about that. Um, if you, if we say that the application has to like explicitly approve the incoming connection, that feels like adding requirements to the stream layer that we don't want. Here's my, so my, con here's my concern is like, um, imagine that scenario I just described. So now the sending application sends a bunch of money over a connection and then an hour later tries to send again using the same credentials. So it doesn't do the SPSP, but again, it just says, okay, send another bit of money over that, that same connection. Um, uh -huh. There's no guarantee that that will work. And if it does, suddenly the application layer on the receive side, um, has to now account for incoming money against perhaps like an invoice or a session or something at the application layer that it thought was now finished. So this is where this question came from. It was more us, we were discussing like, how do you do the aggregation on kind of the wallet side of things? So you've got incoming money, you want to account for it in a certain way. So like someone's paying off an invoice or um, something. So you generate a set of stream credentials for that invoice you give it to the sender, they pay the money and you can say, okay, all the money that came in on that connection was for that invoice. But now if you receive more money later on that connection, what do you do with it? You have nowhere to like put it. You want to be able to say, no, I can't accept that anymore. And like, that's the requirement. That's the, that's the, like the failure at the interface between stream and application that I'm trying to solve for. Yeah, but the fact that this is so tied to like what the application wants feels like this does not belong in the transport layer. Uh, it feels yeah, like to me, I think it's a it's a it's a function of the transport layer that enables the application to do more. Like you, you either have to do one or the other. Either the transport has to call out to the application layer every time to enable the application layer to do something with this or the transport layer could have a function where it says, cool, I've created some credentials and they have an expiry. Um, that, that can be completely opaque. It could be encoded in the address. And if an incoming connection comes in with those credentials and they've expired, this, the, the transport layer can just reject them and nothing more has to happen. Um, but that way the application layer can know um, I wanted credentials that expire in 20 minutes and after 20 minutes, I know no more money is going to come in on that connection. Like I, I can be comfortable that, with that. So that's something that could be built like then slightly separate question. Um, I'm still not totally convinced by that, but like right now the a stream implementation could be built with exactly that logic. Um, yeah. Like 
that's not what's in there by default, but like it could be could be built with that without any protocol changes. Why is it useful to have a specific error code for this? Uh, I'm 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 happy with David's explanation. Like I think you could not have an explicit error code. I think it's fine for security reasons just to say those credentials aren't valid and for the sender to say, okay, go and do another setup and try and get new credentials. I, I think that's cool. So it doesn't have to have a, a new um, a new code. I think that's probably a fair a fair point. Okay, so so then this is really just a question of like should implementations be built with this functionality? Yeah, so I think it's like I say, I think it's at the intersection, at the interface between application and transport. So as an application, uh -huh. I'm going to ask the transport layer to generate me an address and secret. I'd like to be able to put a, an expiry on those and say, hey, when you generate these, stop accepting connections using these after a certain amount of time, uh -huh. or even packets on that connection, like put some explicit, because otherwise it's very difficult from the application layer to, you know, to track payments against connections if they could come in at any time in the future. Okay, so then I would maybe complicate this a little bit and say, all right, let's say we were going to, let's play this out and say we were going to build this into the stream receiver so that uh, it would just encode these details in the, in the address. Now the question would be, should you give the sender a way to know how long they're valid for? And the reason you might want to do that is so that they can request new credentials before those expire. That seems like a nice thing to do. <laughs> like I said, I mean, the problem, the explicit problem we're solving for is that sort of interface, the, the sort of the application layer needing to correlate like payments against the connection tag. And it's the application layer that keeps a record of, okay, payments came in against this connection. And I know they, those are for this specific application thing. And I want to be able to know at a point in time, no more payments will come in on that connection tag. So now if we understand that as the requirement, like one way of doing that is encode, a, encode an expiry into the credentials or somehow track an expiry. A, an additional, I think, nice to have feature would make that expire, be making that expiry visible to the sender as well. Yeah, it's just, it seems and that more... could be done at the application layer. So, so imagine yeah. this, if I, if I query an SPSP endpoint, I uh, get back an address secret and uh, an expiry time. And it says like, that's optional. And if I get that, it basically says, Hey, here's an address and secret you can use to open a stream connection, but be aware that connection will auto close at the receiver at this time. That's, I think that seems like something we could add at the application there. Oh, another thing you just made me think of is how you would handle closing the connection if it's open at the expiry time. Oof. Yeah, the, the receiver would probably have to do that. Yeah, and also bearing in mind that you might be like, you're doing stateless uh, receiving, so you could be amongst in number of nodes. So like, that's why I'm saying like, if you bubble it up to the application layer, where does that actually occur? Does every single stateless node need to check that every single time it receives a packet it doesn't know about from a credentials? 
Yeah, that's why I quite like the idea of encoding it in the address. Like once a connection comes in, you can know that the that connection has an expiry and you can you know you can know every time a packet comes in whether that packet's on a connection that you should have closed by now. So so two thoughts. Um I'm not exactly opposed to encoding it in the address, but another overt place you could encode it is in the SPSP response or whatever uh layer that you're using to get uh your stream credentials. The the other thought is that Sorry, David, I Sorry. think you have to do it in both because I think at least the way we're generating stream credentials today, the stream receiver is stateless. And so when the incoming, like the initial packet to open the connection comes in, the receiver needs to be able to determine whether that those credentials have expired. So those have uh, to be okay. encoded in the, in the address. But I do think okay. it's worth having them in both for the sake of the sender knowing what that value is, as Evan points out. So one, one other that you can't, you can't. Um, I mean, I mean, like uh, credentials expired is like one case of invalid invalid credentials, right? And so, when credentials are invalid, you really shouldn't be using them to encrypt stream frames. Um, so, like, we have this other case, which is like, imagine you just have bad credentials. You're never going to be in, able to encrypt anyway and so the the best that you'll get is this f6 which is an unexpected payment which is in the rfc so an application is going to have to handle and i see that a lot like sometimes you know the especially with a stateless receiver the server gets reset maybe and the server secret changes and all of a sudden you know sending doesn't work like it seems like the application layer is going to have to handle the superset of this case anyway so it does feel a little odd to like be making special dispensation for this one particular subset of a broader broader case. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we're I think the consensus is that extra exception codes and stuff are not necessary. But I think it would be useful. So where I see this change actually being implemented is when you request credentials, when you request credentials from the transport layer, so your application speaks to its stream receiver and says give me an address and secret for this connection tag can also specify an expiry on those so that the credentials that are generated are going to expire and then the receiver tracks those expiries and actually closes connections or stops accepting incoming connections for credentials that have expired but i agree with you they would just use a, one of the existing exception codes in those cases Okay. Should so in terms of RFC, like um, th this feels like something that is going to, like let's say everyone agreed, we're basically going to start adding a little bit to the um, one or both of the SPSP response and the address so that the receiver can uh, track it statelessly. Um, I'm curious, like what what people's opinion is on. Is this something that needs to be mentioned in the spec? Like, when if, if a lot of implementations have this special encoding, does the, it matter? Just, or this is the interesting thing, stuff? right? Is is the the interface from the application to the transport layer isn't really specced. That interface is kind of implicit based on the functions of how SPSP of how Stream works. So we don't say like your interface. If you implement an SPSP and stream receiver, you must expose this interface to application layer. We will just sort of 
settled on a kind of standard set of things. So what we could do is um, experiment a bit and add this um, as basically it's a parameter to the get credentials um, or I forget what the function's called, but that function and just see, you know, like, you know, play around a bit with how that works. Um, I, I can have a look again through the spec and see where it might make sense to add some stuff and submit a PR at some point uh, around that. Um, maybe that's a fine way to just like a next step on this and then see where we go. Yeah, that sounds fine. Okay, cool. We, we, can, we can do a bit of experimenting on that. Um, uh, it's probably not going to happen until like early in the new year, but it um, doesn't seem like this is super urgent. It's just something that came up in some of the use cases we've been dealing with. So we can experiment a bit and, and we'll give some feedback when we've, when we've done that. Matt, what's your, what's your thought on that? I mean, how easy would it be to add this to um, your implementation of stream? Um, yeah, I mean, basically I've copied what uh, Evan's done in the Rust connector. So it's pretty bare bones. So you should be able to add and remove stuff quite quite easily. Okay, cool. Okay, we can chat about it. Um, maybe in the new year we can we can add it and play around with it. I don't, I don't want to consume the whole call on this topic. So um, if everyone's happy for us to do that and then we'll, we'll submit a PR um, at some point with some potential spec changes just to accommodate this. Um, or maybe, maybe not. I don't know if, if, I don't know Evan, if you ever had any plans to sort of spec out a, a some sort of standard like interface um, for applications to consume something kind of like the, the socket interface for stream. Um, I think it's a bit, I think it could be useful in the future, but I think it's premature because like in general, I think our application layer is underdeveloped, which is one of the reasons I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in the open payment stuff because like right now we have implementations of stream that are tailored for like a really specific use case and we don't really have other use cases that we've tried out figuring out what the interface needs to be. So I would look at it more that way and not bother writing it up. Like anybody who's going to implement stream right now must read the code of the other application of the other implementations. So I, yeah, think, I that's, think that's, that's fine. fine. Okay, and cool. yeah, we'll just do that later. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And now that we've got like three or four implementations in different languages, it's probably we'll get to a point where we can realistically make kind of an abstract interface definition that, that people can work on. Um, okay, uh, let's let's not dwell on that any longer. Then, um, uh, Evan, you wanted to talk about uh, any? Sorry, um, anybody else on the call have any other thoughts on this or? Uh, anything we, you know, the four of us kind of dominated that conversation. Okay. Um, Evan, you wanted to talk about the uh, Interledger 2020 blog idea and, and progress on that. So um, I'm unfortunately not done with mine, but I just put out a, a call on the forum for anyone that's interested in writing an Interledger 2020 blog post. And I would very much encourage everybody on the call or people that are, that are interested in Interledger or have been contributing for a while. But um, this idea came from the Rust community where they do end of year blog posts every year. And it's become a nice tradition and a way for 
the community to kind of articulate what their hopes and, and needs are for the project. And then that gets rolled into the roadmap. Now, I apologize for putting out this idea kind of late. Uh, so we've there's been two submissions so far, as, as far as I know, uh, but would very much encourage everybody else to to write some thoughts up. It could be long or it could be very, very short if there's just one thing that you want to see. Um, I think we probably, it may be good to talk about them once a couple more people have, have written stuff up, um, but I guess I'll leave it there for now. Cool, thanks. Yeah, I, I think it's a cool idea. I, I've already read um, the two that have been published and, and it's really uh, helpful to get different perspectives on the way people think uh, we need to put in work or what they think is going right or going wrong. Um, so yeah, the more the more input on that, I think it's a really nice way of getting broader input um, for the community. I'll definitely try and put one together. Um, it may be that I put it out early next year rather than you know before the end of the year, but um, encourage everyone to get involved. Um, any comments on that? Anyone have plans to write a blog post that uh, they're going to commit to on the call? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Kincaid. Kincaid is committed and the recording will go out and you will hear his commitment. Um, anyone else? Okay, well, we'll look forward to them anyway. Um, David, you wanted to chat a bit about the proposed new RFC process. David, you may be muted if you are talking. How's that? Can you hear me now? Yes. Cool. Uh, I put up a PR a few days ago with a slight tweak to the um, contribution uh, guidelines. There's a file called contributing.md in the repo. Uh, here, put a link in chat there for everyone to see. Basically, the only real substantive change is that uh, the current process today is if somebody has a new idea for an RFC, you just make a PR. And it doesn't really get merged until, um, you know, there's sort of a rough consensus in the community, which is theoretically fine. But in practice, what happens is, especially for like sort of somewhat controversial RFCs, get a lot of comments. There's two examples in, in the PR. Uh, one had like 300 comments. The other had, you know, somewhere on the, on the order of 50, and GitHub really kind of struggles to load those types of PRs. Like it, it just becomes unwieldy. It's also difficult to understand what's going on when there's like 300 conversation threads with, you know, no labeling and um, just kind of everywhere. Sometimes they show up on the the main page. Sometimes they are buried. Um, so the proposal is that we add this new sort of section. Um, to the submission process, which is like very lightweight. It's basically somebody puts up a PR with um, some proposal that they want to see turned into an RFC. A moderator will basically just make sure that um, it's formatted correctly, essentially. There's a couple fields at the top that you generally need. Uh, but otherwise, there's really no editorial anything. Um, you know, it, it needs to pertain to Interledger, you know, um, topically it should relate, but otherwise, 
uh, should be a very lightweight like approval process for these um, RFCs. And then debate and changes can happen through a more granular PR process, um, which I think should should help, uh, both in terms of like editing an RFC, uh, but also uh, maybe getting a little bit more organized and like improved conversation going around various proposals. So. Um, there's a few changes uh, proposed by, uh, I think, Matt and Adrian, and uh, thanks guys for reading through it. I, I haven't, you know, pushed them, but um, I didn't see anything that, like, uh, that I didn't agree with, so I plan to kind of merge all those suggestions in, um, and then uh, wanted to give everyone a chance to, like, look at it and see what you think. It shouldn't really substantively change, you know, how something becomes an interledger RFC, other than there might be things, you know, in this special initial bucket. Cool, thanks, David. Um, yeah, so I, I've posted a few comments. I just wanted, uh, kind of at a high level, I was wondering, um, do you think, do you think it's necessary for proposals to exist in the RFC's repo at all? Like, what was your thinking there? Like, my my gut feel is if someone has something they want to propose and we want to make it really lightweight to just like throw an idea out there. It should almost be as simple as like, you know, posting an issue or just pointing people at an idea they've put up somewhere. So it could be a gist, could be a blog post they've written. Um, what, like, do, do you think we need to have like, I, I, I like the idea of kind of a working draft then an RFC and that working draft is sort of, for want of a better word, where they're on kind of standards track, that's like everyone agrees this is something worth working on. Um, but maybe pre-working draft should be a little bit more of a free-for-all. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not opposed, and I think that could still happen. Um, I guess the, the two things coming to my mind are um, just, I guess, my experience with the authority. So, um, I, I think if I look back on the auth sort of proposal, the, the ILP over HTTP auth proposal, um, like it probably started off with like the wrong um, scope, frankly, but the feedback was really valuable. And I think um, like it, it would have been difficult if that just sort of lived on my own repo. Uh, somehow I would have had to been like, um, you know, I would be have to be bringing it up on calls or whatever. So, so when people come to the interledger like GitHub, it's sort of interesting to be able to just be like, oh, what are the open issues being talked about or whatever. Uh, so things might get hidden in that sense from like um, newcomers, perhaps, or just even um, people that have been around a while but maybe forget. So, like, um, I don't, I don't have like in my mind a list of all of everyone's proposals through the community that happen to be on their own repos because um, I just I forget about it. Uh, but being able to come to one place is helpful. The other thing is the issues in the RFC repo are pretty pretty aggressively um, stale botted. And so um, like really I, I think the, the type of things that would be in this like working draft are probably things that the community isn't quite ready to like accept. Otherwise they they could just go right to RFC. So um, I guess those would be my only two sort of concerns, visibility and then like things that might take longer than a week. So the, the, the auth RFC I think has been 
you know, I've been iterating on it since the summer. So that's like quite a bit longer than a normal like RFC. Mm. So, I, like, I guess from um, my my feeling on this is, if you want to make a proposal, like, it's your proposal. Like, you can own it. You can propose it however you want. Uh, and once the community agrees it's something worth doing, then you have to fit it into the structures that we've defined. Like you, so, so maybe a way to do this is just say, if you have a proposal and you have nowhere to put it, we've got a proposals folder, you can put it in there. And basically it's just a markdown document. And if you put some headers on, it'll make it easier for people to find. But in my opinion, the way to get feedback on proposals is like, talk about them on the forum, talk about them on Slack, log an issue in GitHub, um, get people to engage. If nobody engages on your proposal, it's probably a bad proposal or nobody's interested in it. That's like, that's the world of standards, at least as I've come to know. There's generally people will engage if you're proposing something that they care about. Yeah, I, I don't agree. I, I mean, I don't disagree there. Sorry. Um, I suppose the two the two problem RFCs in my mind are this auth RFC. So totally debatable if the community is gonna it just doesn't want it. Um, it. It's more of a recommendation rather than an RFC, which we also don't. I mean, like I think it's controversial enough. Like some people don't agree with the recommendations, and so like it's not. But like maybe maybe that's the real reason this thing's been floating around a long time is is not that um, it, it it could have been better lived as like a proposal, but but that said like so um, uh, despite the fact that not everyone in the community is going to use the auth recommendations, uh, meaning it maybe doesn't make sense as an RFC there there will be a number of implementations that do use them. Uh, it's just that not every use case will use them, so that's a little bit of an maybe it's maybe it's an oddity in terms of a document. Um, but I, I guess I'd be curious to hear. Um, I don't know, Kincaid, not to put you on the spot, but the other PR that had this sort of addresses as well is the um, the settlement engine PR uh, or RFC, which basically was a little bit different. It just had a ton of feedback on it, and so editing it was very difficult. Because our, our process is like, well, until it's edited, it can't be pushed. And it kind of had this um, chicken and egg problem, which is like, we really need to push this somewhere so that we can like maybe make discrete PRs against it. But we can't because the community needs to approve it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that stems from GitHub is just not a good platform for collaborative editing. Um, I think a lot of like the com like comments thre comment threads just like totally break the flow of kind of reading through the um, the changes and it makes it very hard to kind of look at look at the the proposal as a whole, but also like look at even kind of discrete portions of it. And I think like breaking it up into separate PRs would have helped a lot with that. But I. I think a lot of it is like, you know, it would have worked better if I, I'm not necessarily saying we should we should go this route, but like Google Docs would have been way better, like for for something like that, and like just having comment threads and suggestions and um, and make it much easier uh, to edit uh, something like that. 
Um, anyone else have any thoughts uh, on this? Any experience people um, have had that they think would be worth us tapping into? I, uh, yeah, go ahead, David. I, I, just, I just want to say, um, like, Kincaid's idea isn't half bad. Like, I, I agree. Like, GitHub, the, the way we use GitHub right now is is pretty unworkable, especially for RFCs that need like a lot of community feedback. So, um, I think we need something. I mean, I'm, I'm open like that. Maybe. So I, uh, I would I would say that W three C and ITF. Yeah, W three C and ITF both use GitHub for um, for this purpose. Um, because it's way more accessible, I think, to, to a lot of people. And actually, yeah. um, once you get to kind of a working draft, you don't really want people all working on the doc at once. You need editors, you need somebody who owns the doc. And basically, people can suggest changes, people can point out issues. But what they do differently to what we have now is the document, the draft document isn't a PR, it's actually an artifact. Often, in fact, it's a whole repo. So like, there's a way, for example, if you go into the IETF, I think it's the HTTP working group, they've got a whole template, repo template that you can use. So basically you create a repository, which is your, your spec, and it has a bunch of tooling around generating different versions and all sorts of stuff. But it kicks you off with basically a, a basic spec. And generally it's a spec and an explainer document or something like an intro doc, a readme or whatever, that gives people a high level view of what you're trying to do in kind of human speak rather than spec text. Um, and the way people discuss it is they log issues in the repo. Um, and then if the, if necessary, those issues um, then result in pull requests or people log pull requests. But a pull request is generally like, it's not the whole spec in it itself. It's, hey, I think this part of the spec should change. So here's a pull request to change it. Um, I think that is way more workable. Yeah, I'm open to that. I mean, so would the would the counter proposal be there? Hey, uh, change this PR that I put up to say when you want to create a new proposal, create a new repo in your own GitHub, and make it there, and then and then what? Like submit a PR with like a link, and we and we just have like yeah. A so link maybe of, um, maybe we should have uh, like a. I know the web incubator community group have this at W3C and IETF have it, but we should have like a really basic repo template that says, hey, mm -hmm. if you want to propose something, you need README, you need a like basic spec. And when you start, maybe you just have the README. Like first let people tell you if it's a bad idea. Um, yeah. And if everyone says this is a bad idea, then like don't have wasted hours and hours writing a spec. First, like let people yeah. get people's feedback. And then people can, yeah, I, I think I think I did it for the web monetization spec um, recently, and I think it worked pretty well. And then it's very easy after that to transfer ownership if you want to, you know, of your repo to um, like Interledger, and then we merge it in somehow, or just take the spec itself once it's written, and once people mm -hmm. generally feel like the spec's in a good state, it becomes a working draft. So I think your process makes sense of having like those three sort of call it stages, like proposal, working draft, and then an RFC. Um, but I'm, I'm really I'm really keen for us to lower the barriers to 
entry for people to just propose stuff and like and and make it make it easier for people to propose stuff that's completely crazy and stupid and for us to be able to discuss it and come to that conclusion um without people feeling like if they go through this heavy-handed process just to get like it in there it's gonna it's not worth it because there's a high likelihood it's gonna get like rejected by people mm -hmm. okay I, I i think that's a good idea i'll, I'll uh, i think i'll so i'll adjust some of the pr and maybe we can cool uh, and, and i mean i'll i'll uh, try and dig up i'll try and find the two um templates i'm talking about the w3c one and the itf one and say okay. to you um, if you want to have a look at them as a reference, I think it's the HTTP working group that has a good amount. Um, a bunch of like individuals at ITF, I think they've also created their own, but um, it's like every person's got their own flavor with their own tooling that they like. You know, some use Make, some use, uh, you know, other sort of publishing workflows. I think just Markdown and GitHub is probably the simplest, um, but yeah, my maybe. Okay, can you throw those into the PR? The, yeah, the, the I'll, do that. I'll do that after. Okay. Anyone else have any comments? I see Dora said, yeah, could we refer to ITF process? So I think what David's proposed is pretty close to that. Like ITF, anyone can propose an internet draft. You don't have to have any special privilege. And it, it's an internet draft and people talk about it and refer to it as, you know, an internet draft for a while. And then if it gets taken up by a working group, it gets um, sort of standards tracked um i don't know it's exactly at what point you get an rfc number but that i think your proposal david kind of maps to the itf process pretty well okay um i think that's it on that topic unless anyone has anything else they want to add then last but not least um the core recordings. So I've fallen behind in the last two weeks on doing the core recordings. I prepared the one for like two calls ago. And I discovered that when I've been putting the links up, they haven't actually been publishing on the site properly. So um, I did try and reach out to the guys who did the website changes and haven't heard back. So I'll follow up on that again. I apologize. I've really been pushing it. Um, but the thing I really wanted to ask if anyone's on the call and i see sabina's on and she actually made this proposal um is there anyone who has experience with creating podcasts my understanding is it's just a special rss feed um but i think it would be a cool idea if the calls could be just published to a feed so that people with podcast apps can listen to the calls whenever they want to automatically get them anybody know how to do that have any tools or ideas on how that works No aspirant podcasters out there. Okay, I'll, I'll do some research and if anyone else um, comes across like platforms or tools for doing this, uh, I'd appreciate it. So yeah, if you send them my way and then I can I can explore this a bit further. Um, and Sabine will be able to listen to our calls when she goes for a morning jog. That's it for the uh, scheduled agenda. Agenda. Anyone have any um, other topics they wanted to discover? Dis discuss, discover. If not, we're gonna 
wrap up 10 minutes early. Did, did Evan not want to discuss the, the 2020 blog posts? We did that earlier. Oh, uh, sorry. We, we dropped because of internet, so we obviously didn't hear it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we, we did cover that basically. Um, yeah, the links in the forum and uh, there's been two posts so far, but um, we'll probably we'll probably have a follow-up in the new year once people have published a few more posts. So on that topic, um, in terms of scheduling our next call, if we go two weeks from now, it's Christmas Day. So I'm going to propose we don't have a call on Christmas Day. Uh, if we go a week beyond that, it's New Year's Day. So I'm going to propose we don't have a call on that day. Um, so basically, we would go four weeks. We would skip, effectively just skip the 25th of December. Um, and our next call would be the 8th of Jan. Does that work for everybody? I know for the Northern Hemisphere folks, you don't take as much holidays we do now, but um, is there anyone who's keen to have a call between now and the 8th or happy to wait till late? In that case, uh, next call will be the 8th of January. Uh, and let's you know plan now to do a review of some of the blog posts that you're all going to write between now and then. Got a whole four weeks to do it. Um, and any other topics uh, that you want to add, don't forget to put them on the forum. Immediately after this call, I will set up the, uh, the thread for tracking the agenda for the 8th of Jan. And again, if anyone has any thoughts on how we can podcast these recordings, I'd appreciate it. Last chance for any additional topics. In that case, have a great holidays, everyone. Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you're celebrating, if you're celebrating. And we'll chat again on the 8th of Jan. Cheers, all. Bye, thanks. Take care.